is a burning thing And it makes a fiery ring Bound by wild desire I fell into a ring of fire This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And on this day in history, Johnny Cash was born. And so we're going to spend the next hour talking about his life, playing his music, hearing from his son, hearing from other artists playing his music, and hearing from Rick Rubin, the man who resuscitated this life and career and act and art. A remarkable story. But when you're telling a story, you've got to start at the beginning. Born in Kingsland, Arkansas. The son of poor Southern Baptist sharecroppers. Cash was one of seven children born to Ray and Carrie Rivers Cash. They moved with his family at the age of three to Dicey's, Arkansas, so that his father could take advantage of the New Deal farming programs instituted by President Roosevelt. There, the Cash clan lived in a five-room house and farmed 20 acres of cotton and other seasonal crops. We went into the vault to dig out some clips. And here's Johnny talking about his childhood in Arkansas in those cotton fields, about the house that he was born in. February 26, 1932, in a little house surrounded by cotton fields. My father was a cotton farmer, walked behind the mules with the plow, and I did that as well. It was a family thing. Everybody in the family worked in the fields. Even the girls did. There's some sweet memories and some sad memories too, but, but it was a good life. But it was a good life. It was a hard life. But the hardest thing that happened to Johnny was losing his older brother and a star older brother one he really looked up to. Here's Johnny's son, John Carter Cash, talking about his dad and his dad's brother. If it hadn't been for losing Jack, there's no telling if he ever would have gone on to sing the songs that he sang with such heartache, you know, um, related to so many people, you know, his, his suffering so easily because it was on his sleeve. He had a great understanding and closer spiritual relationship with God because he came in and studied in Jack's stead. And though he continued to sing and followed his heart's desire um, in music, he still delved even deeper into studying the Bible, my father did, in life because I believe that he had that desire to be who he believed Jack would have been. And he believed Jack would have been a pastor and a man of the cloth. Here's John Carter Cash, again, Johnny's son, talking about his dad's love of gospel music. This is the first music he ever fell in love with. You're also going to hear in this clip from Marshall Grant from the Tennessee Two, who was in the room that fateful day Cash auditioned in Memphis for Sam Phillips. My father's greatest desire when he got into the music business, he wanted to sing gospel songs on the radio. And I think, you know, I think it was only later on that he realized that, that you know, he, he might be actually making records in the studio and that they'd be recorded. He just wanted to sing on the radio. When we went to audition for Sam Phillips, 
it was still gospel music that we wanted to do. And we auditioned for Sam Phillips at Sun Records with a song called I Was There When It Happened. So I guess I ought to know. Well, I was there when it happened, and so I guess I ought to know. And if you remember in that scene from Walk the Line, Joaquin Phoenix walks into that studio. He sings that song. Sam Phillips is just shaking his head. He doesn't buy what Johnny's selling. And, well, here's the exchange in that movie. We come down here, we play for a minute, and he tells me I don't believe in God. You know exactly what I'm telling you. We've already heard that song a hundred times, just like that, just like how you were singing it. Well, he didn't let us bring it home. (laughs) Bring it home? All right, let's bring it home. If he was hit by a truck and you were lying out in that gutter dying and you had time to sing one song, huh? one song people would remember before your dirt, one song that would let God know what you felt about your time here on earth, one song that would sum you up, you telling me that's the song you'd sing, that same Jimmy Davis tune we hear on the radio all day about your peace within and how it's real and how you're going to shout it? Or would you sing something different? And my goodness, he started to sing something different. What's left out of Walk the Line, and we'll get into in subsequent segments in this hour, is that he did keep on singing gospel. But ultimately, this, not soon thereafter, not long after this exchange, was Johnny Cash's first number one song. And the number one billboard hit for him on the country charts. And here it is. on this heart of mine I keep my eyes wide open all the time I keep the ends out for the tie that binds because you're mine I walk the line Lyrics that weren't exactly shake, rattle, and roll I keep a close watch on this heart of mine I keep my eyes wide open all the time I keep the ends out for the tie that binds because you're mine I walk the line. His Christian essence there, right from the beginning. The struggles between flesh and the spirit. A song about marital fidelity and his struggles with it. And he would have them. And he sung honestly about them. And so for the hour, the life of Johnny Cash is you won't hear anyone else on Our American Stories. But Our American Stories. And that's why we do what we do for you. These are the stories you want to hear when we come back more on the life of Johnny Cash, born this day in history in 1932. I walk the line. You've got a way to keep me on your side. You give me calls for love that I can't hide. And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, 
come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, the life of Johnny Cash being celebrated on this day in history. There's a man going around taking names, and he decides who to free and who to blame. Everybody won't be treated all the same. There'll be a golden ladder reaching down. When the man comes around. And that man, of course, to Johnny Cash was, well, we know who that man is. And Walk the Line did not get into this. And it was a great movie. But it stripped the animating force of Cash's life. And that was God. And that was Jesus Christ. And Johnny wrote about his sin. We learned that about Scalia. His sin. We, you know, Christians have to talk about their sin or they're not, they're not being honest. And this, if anything, Johnny Cash was. And I think that's the appeal. And this movie just focused on his love of June, but not on his love of Christ. And let me tell you, Johnny did. He recorded the entire King James Version of the New Testament. Did you know that? He performed countless Billy Graham revivals, made a movie about the life of Jesus, and studied the Bible so much, he almost had a, well, I think he knew more about it than most Divinity School PhDs. Somehow none of that made it to the screen. Let's take a listen to Johnny's reading of Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, And the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. None of it in the movie Walk the Line. Leaving out Cash's Christian faith, from his life story would be like leaving out half-naked women from you Hefners, or like telling the story of Jackie Robinson without ever mentioning race or segregation. You know, Cash was interviewed quite a number of times about his drug addiction. He spoke openly about his bouts with it and his selfishness. In one interview with Songwriter Magazine, he said this, You don't think about anyone else. When you're on drugs, you think about yourself and where your next stash is coming from or your next drink. I wanted and wasted so much. I mean, we're not talking days I wasted. We're talking years, maybe decades. What a confession. Believers and non-believers alike know about such struggles. That's what attracted so many people to Cash's music, his humility, his empathy. Here's a story that should have been in the the movie. 
It's out of his book, out of the book. And I think if you can read one book about Johnny Cash, it's called A Man Called Cash by Steve Turner. The book was supposed to be based on this. The, the movie was supposed to be based on this book, but my goodness, all the good stuff's not in the movie. Turns out Cash in the 1990s wanted to kill himself. And so he decided to go to Chattanooga, not far from his home, to a place called the Nickajack Caves where he spent a lot of time. And he had spent time there early in his life hunting for treasures such as Indian arrowheads and items left behind by Confederate soldiers. But on this occasion, again, he was looking to end his life. This is what he told writer Nick Toshis in 1995. And again, what a scene this would have made in the movie. Cash saying, I just felt like I was at the end of the line. I was down there by myself and I got to feeling that I took so many pills that I'd done it. That I was going to blow up or something. I hadn't eaten in days, I hadn't slept in days, and my mind wasn't working too good anyway. I couldn't stand myself anymore. I wanted to get away from me. And if that meant dying, then okay. I took a flashlight with me into those caves, and I said to myself, I'm going to walk and crawl and climb into that cave until the light goes out, and then I'm just going to lie down. And so I crawled in there with that flashlight, until it burned out and I laid down to die. I was a mile in that cave, at least a mile. And by the way, this cave is filled with over 100,000 bats. But I felt this great comforting presence come over me. And it was saying, no, you're not dying. I got things for you to do. And so I got up, found my way out. Cliffs, ledges, drop-offs. I don't know how I got out. Except... God got me out. Not in the movie. How does that happen? How does that happen? Well, I think we know how that happens. His love for June is all over that movie, but not his love for Christ. And he loved June because of her almost perfect love for Christ. He said it over and over again. Here's another story that wasn't in the movie. This may be my favorite. In August of 1969, hundreds of thousands of young Americans gathered in Woodstock to catch this concert that at the time no one knew would be Woodstock. I mean, it turned out to be one of the great concerts of all time. Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Creedence, Clearwater, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix. You name them, they were there. Sly and the Family Stone. It was everybody. Chris Christopherson had wanted his buddy Johnny Cash to go. Johnny had a show at this time on CBS. And he generally loved to introduce all kinds of new musical acts. We'll get into that in the next segment. His first time ever. His two musical guests were two kids named Bob Dylan and Joni Mitchell. So he loved musicians and he loved celebrating them. But on this particular night, and by the way, that was ABC, not CBS, but on this particular night, he decided to close out his show with one of his favorite gospel songs. And let's take a listen. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Sometimes it causes me to tremble.
perhaps his most famous recordings were ones he made in prisons, especially his two shows at Folsom Prison. Cash seemed at home there. He didn't see himself as better than those men. He was just one of the guys. He understood the prisoners in ways they realized without him ever saying anything. It didn't hurt that he'd written some of his best songs from the point of view of condemned and convicted men. Again, a sinner. He related. The inmates loved him for that. Actually, America loved him for that. When I was just a baby, my mama told me, son, always be a good boy, don't ever play with guns. But I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. When I hear that whistle blowing, I hang my head Bono once said of Cash, he doesn't sing for the damned, he sings with the damned. And that was the true mark of Cash's Christian faith, the empathy he had for men and women, often overlooked in our society. When Cash got serious about his faith and left the women and alcohol behind, some of his old friends were not very happy with him. Quote, They'd rather I be in prison than church, Cash admitted. Waylon Jennings was especially tough on Cash, according to Turner, accusing him of selling out to religion. He'd be attacked by agnostics and atheists if he appeared too pious, explained Stephen Turner, his biographer, and he would be denounced by the religious community if he appeared too worldly. Talk about a tough line Cash had to walk, but he tried to walk it. Cash was once asked how he was able to reach so many people with his message without ever hiding his faith. He had a simple, superb answer. I am not a Christian artist. I am an artist who is a Christian. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. The life of Johnny Cash, born this day in history in 1932. We're telling you the story like no one else is. When we come back, more of his music. And I'll keep this world from dragging me down Gonna stand my ground And I won't back down Hey, baby There ain't no easy way out Hey, I... About the time my daddy left to fight the big war Saw my first pistol in the general store In the general store when I was 13 Thought it was the finest thing I ever had seen I asked if I could have one when I grew up Mama dropped a dozen eggs and she really blew up She really blew up and I didn't understand Mama said the pistol is the devil's right hand She really blew up And that's Johnny Cash covering the great Steve Earle song. He loved the younger writers. The younger writers loved him. In fact, perhaps Bob Dylan's best record, Nashville Skyline, my favorite. Uh, He does a recording of North Country Girl, his song, with one of his heroes, Johnny Cash, and here's what it sounded like.
if you're traveling to the North Country Fair, where the winds hit heavy on the borderline, remember me to one who lives there. For she once was a true love of mine. See for me that her hair's hanging down. It curls and falls all down her breast. See for me that her hair's hanging down. That's the way I remember her best. And that was Johnny, about as good as he sounded. There was a period of time in the 70s and 80s when he sounded like a Johnny Cash cover artist. I saw him at the Lone Star Cafe twice. Once it was very sad, and I didn't get it. And I walked out, and he was on something, and it sounded terrible. And then I saw him again in a more acoustic setting, and I'd never seen anything like it. And we're going to get to that in just a bit. We wanted to talk about Johnny's talent as a storyteller. Because, boy, was he a storyteller. And I don't think he does it better than in this song that we all know. And let's hear a bit of it. I want you to, to if you don't mind, Carl, I'd like you to stay out and help us on some songs. Play the I'd guitar. Love to. One of the greatest guitar players as well as songwriters and singers in the business. Thank Appreciate you. a little help on the guitar, all right? Love it. Thank you, Carl. <laughs> Well, my daddy left home when I was three And he didn't leave much to Ma and me Just this old guitar and an empty bottle of booze Now, I don't blame him cause he run and hid But the meanest thing that he ever did Was before he left, he went and named me Sue Well, he must have thought that it was quite a joke And it got a lot of laughs from a lots of folks Seems I had to fight my whole life through some gal would giggle and I'd get red And some guy'd laugh and I'd bust his head I'll tell you, life ain't easy for a boy named Sue <laughs> Well, I grew up quick and I grew up mean My fists got hard, my wits got keen Roamed from town to town to hide my shame But I made me a vow to the moon and stars I'd search the honky-tonks and bars And kill that man that give me that awful name well, it was Gatlinburg in mid-July And I'd just hit town and my throat was dry I thought I'd stop and have myself a brew At an old saloon on a street of mud There at a table dealing stud Sat the dirty mangy dog that named me Sue Well, I knew that snake was my own sweet dad From a worn-out picture that my mother had And I knew that scar on his cheek and his evil eye he was big and bent and gray and old And I looked at him and my blood ran cold And I said, my name is Sue How do you do? How are you gonna die? And it just goes on. In fact, stopping this song is really hard to do. But what a story. What a storyteller. In 1999, a bunch of artists got together in a star tribute to Johnny. And Bruce Springsteen 
who had actually inspired Johnny, and Johnny covered several of Bruce's songs, Highway Patrolman, State Trooper, from the Nebraska record. Bruce did an introduction before he performed a song. Let's take a listen to that intro. Johnny, I want to send out a big thanks for the inspiration. Uh, you kind of took the... Uh social consciousness from folk music and the the gravity and humor from country music and the rebellion out of the rock and roll and and taught all us young guys that not only was it all right to to tear up all those lines and boundaries, but it was important. And uh, this was a song I loved from the early recordings for a long time. It would be like it. And then Bruce covers it in a way, ultimately, just him and a guitar, that would bring... Rick Rubin and Johnny Cash together to do just the same. Take a listen. I found him by the railroad tracks this morning. I could see that he was nearly dead. I knelt down beside him and I listened to the words dying. He said they let me out of prison Being free school For ten long years I paid for what I'd done I was trying to get back on losing Just to see my rules and get to know my son Give my love to Rose, won't you, mister? Hey, give her this money, tell her to buy some pretty clothes. Tell my boys daddy's proud of them. Don't forget to give my love to Rose. Tell my boy my daddy is proud of him. Something I think Johnny always wanted to hear from his own dad. Bring my love to Rose, one of my favorites, Bruce's favorite. And then a little bit later, Dave Matthews comes out with Emmy Lou Harris and take a listen. Well, I spoke not a word, though it my life, And as Bruce had said, that's what Johnny did. He broke down walls. And think about the artists who loved him and admired him that night. Everybody from Bruce Springsteen to Bono. An Irish rocker, an American rocker. Snoop Dogg, Trent Reznor. All of them openly admired this openly evangelical Southern man. And all because Johnny dared to smash stereotypes transcend musical categories and share himself with the world for better or for worse 
And I got to say, especially for worse. And when we come back, you're hearing Johnny sing the Trent Reznor song, Hurt. We're going to talk about this unique relationship between Cash and his producer, Rick Rubin. And it is special. And you've never heard this before. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. On this day in history, in 1932, Johnny Cash was born. Familiar sting. Try to kill it all away. But I remember everything. What have I become? Delia, oh Delia, Delia all my life. If I hadn't a shot, oh Delia, I'd have had her for my wife. Delia's gone. One more round, Delia's gone. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And that MTV video and that American recording song, Delia's Gone, put Johnny Cash back on the map. He bumped into a guy named Rick Rubin, who was a producer of the Beastie Boys and some heavy metal bands. But, well, he was drawn to this, this guy, just drawn to him. And we're lucky enough, Jesse did some digging and found an interview between Rick Rubin and Johnny Cash. And what had happened at Cash was he'd sort of become a, well, let's sort of just say a cover act of himself. And he had lost touch and contact with that original artist, those original feelings back in that Sun studio. And between the drugs and some bad decision making, I think he had lost himself as an artist. And it took this young Buddhist, because Rick Rubin was a Buddhist and is, to get him in touch with his, actually, I think his faith, his songwriting, the guitar, and that microphone, and nothing else. Let's take a listen from the documentary on the production of the American recordings of Johnny Cash. We hear this master producer, Rick Rubin, talking about how he realized that he wanted to work with his country legend. Most of the artists that I had worked with at that time were all new bands and young artists, and I was thinking it'd be really fun to work with a substantial grown-up artist. And I started thinking about all of the great legendary artists and who may have been in a, in a place that maybe either wasn't doing his best work or wasn't in a good situation. And Johnny was the first one that came, in, came into my mind of really legendary status, important a timeless artist. Well, here's Johnny talking about his first recollection of meeting Rick Rubin backstage at one of his concerts and how they eventually started talking about recording together. Rick Rubin called my manager, Lou Robin, and said he would like to talk to him about recording me. And Lou invited him to come to a concert. So he came to a concert a few miles south of Los Angeles. And I met him backstage, and we didn't really talk about me recording with him then. We talked about the record business and what I had been doing and what I hadn't been doing, mainly. But he said, I'd like to talk to you again. You know, it was getting late, so he came to another concert. And we sat back backstage and talked, and he said, I'd like to record you on American. And I said, what would you do with me that that uh, everybody else is 
tried to do, you know, and couldn't. And he said, well, what would you like to do? He said, that's what I'll do. And I, you know, I said, well, I would like to just take my guitar and sit down in front of a microphone and, and sing until I found the songs that I wanted to record and then record them the way that, that I feel like they should be done. And, and he said, well, that's what I want. He said, I want to get the best out of you, whatever you want to do. That's what I want to get on record. How about that? What an idea. It can be that simple time, sometimes, folks. It can be that simple. Here, Johnny Cash and Rick Rubin talk about how they started recording in Rick's living room. What a smart move. Get out of that studio. The Some first thing that we did in working together was kind of reframe the record-making experience from making just another album to we're not done until this is the best album you've ever made in your life. And whatever that takes is what we're going to do. Okay. And um, it was, it's like this is your first album. It sounded like a dream come true for me because I had always wanted to uh, record this way. I'd always wanted to. I have 25 years ago, I had a conversation with Marty Robbins. I said, I always wanted to record an album called Johnny Cash, Late and Alone. And uh, I told Ruben this. This is what I really would like to do. And uh, he said, let's do it. So we sat down and we, we made a deal. And I sat down in front of a microphone in his living room and went through my list of 200 or more songs and started singing them one after another. And we recorded them as I went along. In this clip, Rick Rubin talks about how he wanted to show the real Johnny Cash. Johnny says it gave him a new enthusiasm, an enthusiasm he never thought he would ever get to experience again. I was really interested in getting to the heart of who he was and really exposing that and, and showing the world who he really was. Like about 18 and 25. It's given me an opportunity to uh, express myself artistically that I never had before. I wrote a letter to Michael. I've drug out every old song that I ever wanted to sing, and, and I've sung them. The Tennessee stud was long and lean, the color of the sun and his eyes were green. It's given me an enthusiasm and a, and a new uh, look at what, I, what my possibilities and capabilities are that I never thought I would get to experience. Well, imagine that, a young man inspiring an older guy to get in touch with his original self. Maybe a self he never knew. Well, Cash says the reaction he got after a concert he did in the Viper Room in Los Angeles, because ultimately Cash had to test these songs out. And the Viper Room is a really famous small room in L.A. And Johnny gets up there with just the guitar and he starts singing these songs alone and he doesn't know what's going to happen. He has no idea what the reaction will be. He's probably scared out of his wits, which is good. And, well, he plays, and the audience the audience went crazy. They wanted more, because they were hearing this colossal talent. Really, almost for the first time, it sounded like. Here's Cash talking about the reaction he got in that room that night. <clears throat> well, the reaction was like the 50s all over again. It was like that kind of excitement. The 50s, you know, like I had, it was, I had freedom of choice in the studio. 
I did an album the way I wanted to, exactly the way I wanted to, the way it felt good to me, the way it felt good to my producer, and the reaction from the critics and the fans was beautiful. To be free. Well, let's take a listen. Uh, take a listen to a couple of the cuts. Of course, the first, the most historic, his cover of Nine Inch Nails is in Trent Reznor's Hurt. I hurt myself today to see if I still feel. I focus on the pain The only thing that's real The needle tears a hole The old familiar sting Try to kill it all away And the lyrics just... Jump out at you. I hurt myself today to see if I just feel. I focus on the pain, the only thing that's real. Only an addict could have sung that song about addiction. Heroin, the drug of choice for Trent Reznor. Johnny Cash never did that, but it didn't matter. Here's Jesse's favorite God's going to cut you down. Can run on for a long time, run on for a long time, run on for a long time. Sooner or later, gotta cut you down. Sooner or later, gotta cut you down. Go tell that long tongue liar, go and tell that midnight rider, tell the rambler, the gambler, the backbiter, tell him that God's gonna cut him down. And circling all the way back to that original theme, I wanted to read something that Stephen Turner closed out his book with and then play the song. And here's how that book ended, Man Called Cash. The realm that Johnny Cash lived in was clouded by pain and colored by grace. He had the ability to transform the rough and commonplace into objects fit for heaven, just as he had been transformed. Rick Rubin remembers him taking Ewan McCall's The First Time Ever I Saw Your Face and turning it from a love song into a devotional song. Quote, He loved that, said Rick Rubin. It came really natural to him. It seemed like his devotion for life came from his devotion for God. Again, an atheist talking about a Christian. This was not in the movie. Shame on the movie. Take a listen to Johnny. The first time Ever I saw your face I thought the sun rose In your eyes
And the moon and the stars Were the gifts you gave This is Lee Habib, The Life of Johnny Cash, born on this day in history in 1932. And the endless sky, my love, and the first time ever I kissed your mouth. And this is Our American Stories, and it's time for our Lewis and Clark series, The Most Epic Road Trip Ever. And we're following Lewis and Clark along their two-and-a-half-year adventure, exploring the American West. Our own Alex Cortez, along with Clay Jenkinson, brings us our 35th feature on what happened during their winter on the Pacific Coast over 200 years ago. Here's what we need to know that they would have known automatically. In an age before refrigeration, you can only preserve food if you jerk it, or if you smoke it, or if you salt it. That's it. You're listening to our resident Lewis and Clark expert, Clay Jenkinson. If you kill a buffalo or kill an elk and just leave it out in 45 degree weather, it's going to be um, rancid within just a few days. But if you salt it and pack it carefully in kegs, it'll last a very long time. That's basically the, the theory of ham, that you take a, a thigh piece of a pig and you either smoke it or you salt it. And that makes it last for, you can make it last for months or even years in temperate weather. So that's one thing. Secondly, Lewis said that the elk that they were eating was insipid, that it was tasteless, that it, it just wasn't any, there was no flavor. And so salt is going to improve the flavor of almost any food. We still, we use it now, in the domestic world at least, exclusively as a flavoring agent, unless you're canning or butchering. Uh, people buy salt now and it's used to flavor food to enhance the flavor of whatever it touches. So they all know this in a way that we don't. Here's Sergeant Ordway. We have nothing to eat but poor elk meat and no salt to season. But still keeping good spirits as we expect this to be the last winter. We will have to pass in this way. And so they sent a crew and they were manufacturing salt all winter. Some of these men knew what they were doing. It's, it's not something you just do on a, you know, start on a, on a Friday afternoon. You have to sort of know what you're doing. And for the hell of it, Clay once decided to make salt the exact same way that the Corps of Discovery did, even though it was surely an abject waste of time in the age of Walmart. I made salt with the salt makers just this last October in Astoria, so I went to the annual Lewis and Clark Trail Heritage Conference in Astoria 
they meet every year somewhere on the trail. And this year they were meeting at Astoria. And so the salt makers, our group, I think mostly from Idaho, but scattered around the Pacific Northwest, they put up their salt factory right on the beach. They got a special permit and they erected a little hut and they brought in a ton of firewood and they brought these giant kettles and then they gathered rocks to form a little sort of uh, shelter or almost a heat directing furnace and so it's hard to manufacture salt so here's how you do it you create a huge fire because you're going to boil and you have giant kettles the largest kettles that you have so you have to imagine Lewis and Clark were carrying very large kettles even over the Bitterroot Mountains. We find it a very tedious operation, that of making salt. And then you send somebody out into the surf, and I did not know this, but you have to get far enough out that you get largely clear of the sand at the beach. So you have to wade out to like chest high. And I mean, these are this is not a very tame ocean. So you're taking some risk with a giant kettle wading deep into the surf as far as you think you can stand it and then you wait for the moment when you think the water is at its clearest and then you call back this five gallon kettle or whatever it turns out to be and then you get that to the salt factory which of course is going to be as close to the shoreline as is possible and then you start pouring it into the smaller kettles and boiling it and you boil it for hours we keep the kettles boiling day and night. Stir it, boil it, boil it, stir it. Some of the salt accumulates on the inner sides of the kettle and you scrape that off. But eventually you get down to salt. It's a gray salt. I'm sure there's plenty of sand in it, but it's salt. And then you uh, scrape that out and put it in some sort of a packing crate or another kettle, or maybe one of the tin canisters that had been used for gunpowder. And Captain Meriwether Lewis was anything but salty about the procurement of salt by his fine men. When the men were able to report somewhat proudly that they had obtained for him a supply of flavoring for their food, and, and he talks about it with some joy. We found it excellent, fine, strong, and white. This was a great treat. This is going to make the return journey a lot more pleasant because we, we finally have some way of flavoring our food. Typically, Clark is less concerned about this. You know, they, the two men have very different dietary uh, preferences. You see it from time to time. Lewis likes dog. Clark doesn't like dog. Lewis needs salt. Clark's indifferent. Captain Clark declares it to be a mere matter of indifference with him whether he uses it or not. But whatever it is, uh, we know that they needed salt for these two primary purposes, to, to preserve what food they could and to flavor it if possible. But the salt that they were able to produce in, in that kind of low-tech way from ocean water uh, was a very big deal to Meriwether Lewis. For myself, I must confess, I felt a considerable inconvenience from the one of it. And great job as always to Alex, and thanks as always to Clay Jenkinson, the editor of the Lewis and Clark Periodical. We proceeded on 
And you can learn more about Clay and his work at ClayJenkinson.com. He's also the host of the Thomas Jefferson Radio Hour, a whole weekly show dedicated to Thomas Jefferson. And yes, he deserves it. And by the way, I love what Clay said about preserving food, and we forget these details in 21st century life. You will either jerk it, smoke it, or salt it. This is Our American Stories, the most epic road trip ever, the story of Lewis and Clark. Football's a religion. Every game you're playing against the best in the country. It seems like every week it's a bowl game. Probably the, the best player to play in the SEC ever. He literally dominated games. Gotta be Walker. Touchdown. Walker. Touchdown. Walker's still going. Can you believe it? He's running over people. Oh, you Herschel Walker. A lot of guys can run through people, but can they run through people and then just completely leave everybody behind them? Herschel breaks a tackle to the 45. I think Herschel was the greatest that's, that's ever been. My God Almighty, he ran right through two men. Incredible. I transformed into a superhero character, like a Superman, that things just don't hurt him no more, and I can do almost anything. And we return to Our American Stories, and you were just listening to a terrific montage that included sportscasters, sports fans, experts, and they were talking about the great Herschel Walker. And if you're over 30, you most certainly know who he is if you're any kind of sports fan. And even if you're under 30, if you're a real diehard sports fan and you actually study up on stars that were around before you. And I, as a young guy, always knew the young boxers and the, 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 the boxers in the 50s and the 60s and the basketball players before my time. So Herschel Walker is, well, he's a legend and a name everyone knows. And we're about to tell his story because his story is so relatable. It's so universal. And it's beautiful. And you're going to hear from Herschel Walker. Really raw. And in a way, you've probably never heard many athletes talk about their own lives. Well, in such an intelligible and simple and straightforward way. But before we do that, a bit about his life. He was born in Augusta, Georgia in 1962 and grew up outside of Wrightsville, Georgia. And Wrightsville is a a tiny town in central Georgia. When he was growing up, it had 2,000 folks. And now, well, it's exploded to 3,600. And for the first 11 years of his life, Walker showed little interest in sports. He preferred reading books and writing poetry. Not exactly general fare for star NFL players. At age 12, however, he began a crash exercise program after getting beat up by a schoolyard bully. Herschel's philosophy and work ethic made him one of the most phenomenal success stories in sports history. An unathletic child by his own account, 
Herschel Walker went on to set all-time football records at every level of play, from high school to the pros, and along the way, he maintained a high grade point average and the unshakable self-respect first instilled in him by his parents. He earned the Heisman Trophy in his junior year at the University of Georgia. The College Football Hall of Fame rated him as one of the two greatest players in the history of the college game, second only to the legendary Red Grange. In 1988, while a member of the Dallas Cowboys, Herschel actually danced with the Fort Worth Ballet. And as an active NFL player, Walker competed in the 1992 Winter Olympics as a member of the United States bobsled team. Talk about some range. He's a fifth-degree black belt in Taekwondo, and holds a perfect professional mixed martial arts record in strike forces heavyweight division of 2-0. He ranks in the NFL's top 10 of all time for most all-purpose yards, and he was a two-time pro bowler. Without any further ado, let's hear from the man himself in this raw interview he conducted with the Academy of Achievement. Here is Herschel Walker. Well, growing up, I was uh, I was not that athletic, and uh, I had a speech impediment. So to be a uh, person that was not athletic, having a speech impediment, I had a lot of kids that made fun of me. Uh, you know, I had a lot of teachers that didn't take the time out to uh, help me to overcome my shortcomings. So I had uh, parents that uh, told me, you're not going to use that as, that as an excuse. You're not going to use that as an excuse to uh, at least try hard and to get good grades or to do whatever. You know, you're just going to have to work on your own. And, you know, I, I sit in the mirror day after day, uh, you know, night after night, saying she sells seashells by the seashore and, you know, all those tongue twisters and this and that. And I overcame the speech impediment. And... Uh, you know, when I became valedictorian in my class my senior year, all those teachers that didn't want to take the time out to uh, help me out then decided they wanted to take the credit for it. But, uh, you know, I had uh, loving parents that uh, no matter what, they were not going to let me use excuses for anything. And, you know, not being able to score touchdowns, you know, people are not going to be your friend. Not being able to run or shoot a basket, people are not going to be your friend. So I had a coach that said, Hershey, if you believe in yourself, you know, you go out and uh, work hard, you know, do some push-ups, sit-ups, and this and that. And I started doing those things. His name was Tom Jordan. And it was fun. I had two older brothers who uh, was very athletic. I mean, Coach Jordan saw me and how clumsy and, uh, you know, I couldn't run, couldn't do anything. He just said himself, you know, if his two brothers are great at sports, Hersher got to have something. He's got to be good at something. So. He used to go, come pick me up after Sunday school, after church, and on Saturdays, and make me go out to this track, and he'd work out with me, and he'd play with me, and he made me feel good about myself, and he said, okay, you're going to do your homework here, you've got to do this here, and that, he was just like my, my parents, and he believed in me, and uh, he's, he, you know, he's the teacher that, uh, you know, they say, what teacher you have, and I say, a coach, and most people say, oh, geez, that's just sports, but that's not. It's, it's that he was someone that was the role model, was the teacher in my life. He's a big fisherman. It's funny because, you know, uh, 
and he always wanted a bass boat. And growing up in Wrightsville, Georgia, you know, I don't have any money. I can barely rub two nickels together. And then uh, becoming a professional foot, a football player, I got him a bass boat. And, you know, that's, and I love that because, you know, for what he did for me, he put me in the position I'm in right now, you know, a bass boat isn't enough. You know, he's, uh, he means a great deal to me. My parents didn't have a lot of money. My high school didn't have a lot of money to afford a lot of the expensive weights and, you know, all this stuff. And I uh, didn't use that as an excuse. I started doing push-ups and sit-ups during, com during commercials as, as I was watching TV and started doing about, you know, sometimes 2,000 push-ups, 3,000 sit-ups, uh, 1,500 pull-ups, uh, dips or, you know, 1,000 dips and, you know, different things like that. And I started creating different hand positions for all that. And then I learned that that could work you out. And in the olden days, that's what people used to do. My sister, she was, uh, she's a year, a little bit over a year older. And she was fast. And, you know, like I was that chubby kid. And she was always beat me. She always beat me. And, and I just felt that, you know, I couldn't see a girl beating me all the time. And I said, I got to beat her. I got to beat her. And I just trained and trained, and you know, every time I went up to a uh, racer, she beat me. Every time I went up, she beat me. And, you know, after you've been beat over 10 times, sometimes people got a tendency of quitting. And I said, no, I'm not gonna quit, I'm not gonna quit. And I kept doing it until I got where I could beat her. And what was so strange about it is I beat her, the first race that I ever beat, I barely beat her. But I think that, and that like, was, that was the springboard. You know, once I saw that I can do it, I said, uh-oh, now it's a little different. Now I'm ready. And I think that's the way the mind works. It's so strange because you can take two little dogs. One could be a small dog. The other one is a small puppy, but he's going to grow up to be this huge 160-pound dog. And you can take this one 30-pound little dog that is an adult at the time. And this big dog, as he grow up, he's been dominated by this little dog. So he always grows up thinking this little dog could beat him. So he can get to his full size of 160 pounds. This little dog still, you know, is only like 30 pounds, but he still think the big dog still think the little dog can beat him. So he's afraid of him because he don't know any better. And I said, sometimes that's the way the mind is, is if you continually to say you can't do it, you're not going to do it. But sooner or later, you got to make that, you know, like I said, you got to swing that bat. Because you never know if you're going to hit a home run. And Walker is so right. If you don't swing the bat, you can't make contact. And heck, you're never going to hit a home run, let alone a single. And if you notice here, there was little room for excuse making in the Walker family. And my goodness, if there's one thing we emphasize here on this show, it's grit, it's perseverance. And victimology just doesn't, well, it doesn't work well for anybody. It just doesn't end well. And again, he had stuttering issues. He wasn't a particularly good athlete. It didn't come naturally to him. But look what his mind and his will and his perseverance accomplished. Well, we're going to get to a lot more of that. And thanks to the Academy of Achievement for providing this source audio. When we come back, you're going to continue to hear a remarkable voice from the sports world, Herschel Walker. His story when we continue here on Our American Stories.
He's a freak of nature. If somebody like him comes around once every 50, 60 years. I wish they would see the real person in me, and one day they would know I'm not here for the show. Who I am, what I do, is only the reaction I get from you. That they cannot see, because all they see is the outside of me. And we return to the story of Herschel Walker, and we continue to play some of that montage material because if you'd ever seen Herschel Walker play, you saw one fierce competitor. And I mean the energy coming out of him. It was just something to behold. And I had the opportunity to meet him twice, and he was just the quietest, mildest-mannered person. It was just remarkable, that dichotomy. But let's return to his story, his own story, in his own words. When I was in the seventh grade, I think, they have this race at the end of the school year, like a mile run. So about three weeks before the race, my father was a farmer. So he plowed this field, and I got out, went into training with my younger brother. For three weeks, I trained. Finally, the day came to, for the race, and I, uh, I got up there with this guy, Willie Jenkins. I remember his name, and this other guy, uh, Wells who uh, everybody predicted they were going to win the race. They were the most athletic kids in my class. And I got up there right with them to run this race, and we started running. And I was feeling good. I was feeling great. I was in shape. No one knew I was been, I'd been uh, training except my younger brother. About the second lap, something said, Herschel, you're not going to win. I'm running, and I'm thinking, okay, wait a minute. Third lap, something said, Herschel, you're not going to win. And I'm up front. There's only like, I'm in the second place. I'm right up front. I'm feeling good. I'm not even tired. And going into the last lap, I'm saying, Hershey, you're not going to win. You're not going to win this race. You better get out of it. You better get out of it. And I'm like in second, whereas I probably could have won it if I had kept running. And uh, I said, okay, what am I going to do? Uh, I'm going to pretend like I pulled a muscle. So on the last curve, I walked off the field and grabbed my hamstring as, at a, in the seventh grade and pretend like I hurt my leg. And uh, Willie Jenkins ended up winning his race, and all day it bothered me. And when I remember going home, getting off the school bus, my younger brother ran up to me and said, how did it, how did it go, how did it go? And I, and I said, well, I, I hurt my leg. And I lied about it. And he said, oh, you know, you'll get him next time. You know, and that made me feel so bad because, uh, you know, you don't, I lied and then, you know, and I think the thing is I didn't try. And I said then no matter whatever happened in my life from then on, I don't care what happened, I'm going to give it everything I got. And it's funny because, you know, I see so many people today that don't want to try. And I say I don't care what I ever do. I never give up at, at anything anymore. I don't care what it is. You'll never see me give up. Oh, jeez. I can't believe it. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I think people, it's so funny because uh, people think I'm crazy because I do so many crazy things, but I think because of that race in my life, you know, I'm, I'm what you call the renegade of uh, professional sports. You know, I've done everything. I've done bobsled, karate, dance, to just about anything. Now, I'm not going to say I'm the best at it, but... I guarantee you I give most people to run for their money at just about everything. I didn't have uh, role models like football players in my life when I was growing up, you know, as a uh, little kid. But 
what I did see was my mother and father getting up early in the morning, going to work, and coming back late in the afternoon, and that they never complained about it. And what I did see is see my mother saying, you know, I love God, and my father loving God, and so they put that love on me, and they threw all that on me to love God. And so my, my role models in life have been my parents because they never complained about anything they ever done. That was seven kids. And whenever a child in the house, a kid in the house went off to work, my parents made him be sure of himself that when he went, he was going to work. He was not going there to clown around. He was not going there just to pass time away. He was going to work. And he was not going to just try to make a dollar by sitting down. He was going to give everything he's got. And I think because of that, that's why I'm always going to give everything I got, because God is going to be proud of you then. You know, there's no such word in my family as lazy. You know, if you're not going to show up and uh, dance at the party, don't go. It's called a party, so you got to have fun. And because I don't drink, I reckon i got to dance. I grew up in the South. Uh, my senior year was a very big uh, racial uh, detention. You know, in my hometown, that was a very big deal. And, you know, it's, it's tough, but you knowing who you are and you knowing that, you know, whites know better than you are, Herschel. You know better than they are. And I think the biggest thing that helped me to overcome is when it's all said and done, God is not going to have a list and say, oh, geez, you're white, so you're going in, you're black, you're not, or you're black, you're coming in, and you're white, you're not. I was going to church one Sunday, and I didn't want to go. I was tired of going to church and stuff, and I hid my shoes. I didn't want to go. And uh, it's funny because uh, I went to my mother, and she said, oh, you ready to go to church? And I said, no, I, I can't go. She said, why? I said, you know, I don't have any shoes. You know, you only have one pair of Sunday sh shoes. And I said, I don't have any shoes to go. And she said, no, you can come on and go. I said, I don't have any shoes. She said, you know, God don't care how you look. And I thought about it, and you know, that's true. God don't care how you look, and that's what, he don't care whether you're white, black, as long as you've been a good person, you believe in him. And I said, that's the key, and we always, I think we're, we're always putting category. We gotta put someone in a category. Okay, he's this, he's that, he's this. You know, that's, that doesn't matter. As long as he can do the job, you know, I think that's what counts. You know, my father is, is so strange because my father had six sisters. He was the only boy. And when he was 12, his father was killed. So he took the responsibility to raise his six sisters. Never complained, never said anything about it. And I say, you know, that's my role model in life. And it's strange because I never said anything to him about it. And uh, I was in Innsbruck, Austria one, one time, you know, a long way away from home. And, I started thinking, I said, you know, I always tell my mother I love her, but I never told my father that. And I said, you know, it's so funny because uh, he means so much to me in my life, and I just never said that. I happened to call him up. It took me a couple of days to get him because of the time difference. But when I called him up, I, uh, I told him. And my mother said, you don't know what that really meant to him. And those are people that I look up to in life that have given me this. And I think if I go out in life now and do something crazy, I embarrass them. I don't care about embarrassing myself, but to embarrass people that I love or to embarrass people that I've drawn so much from, I think it destroy me worse than anything. Well, coming from a small town, it's, uh, 
It was tough, really, to dream big. You know, my biggest dream, you know, I grew up in a small town in Georgia. My biggest dream was one day to be able to go to Atlanta, Georgia, you know, to be able to go to Atlanta, which was, which Atlanta was uh, about two hours, 45 minutes from my home. So, you know, the dream about going to Atlanta was it, you know. And so me, I think, growing up, I started developing confidence in what I felt. My parents helped me to believe in myself. I wasn't the best-looking guy. I was not the best athlete in the world. But they made me feel good about myself. Hershey, you are somebody. You know, whether you're black, white, doesn't matter. You are a person, and God, lo and God loves you. So that made me feel good. So I was able to feel good about myself growing up in a small town. And then it gave me those real hard work ethics. You know, that's what we you, we need today because nothing is going to come to you easy. We got too much of a competitive world for anything to come easy to you. People competing in everything. It doesn't matter what it is. Football, that's just athletics. But in the business world, you know, doing everything, people are competing. So you got to get those very good work, work ethics. And I think that helped me to develop good work ethics in a small town. And my goodness, what words and what wisdom something we can apply to all of our lives and we need more of this kind of message going out to the world right now as people are trying to divide themselves by so many categories. And here's Herschel Walker. Well, just getting it down to one thing. Can you show up and can you do the job? Can you do the work? When we come back, more of Herschel Walker's story here on Our American Stories. And we return to Herschel Walker's story in his own words. And my goodness, you're hearing a unique American voice. I got to tell you, there's a bit of a philosopher in this man. And every human being in this country, everyone should hear this man's story. And that's what we do here in Our American Stories, bring you these stories unfiltered. So let's return to Herschel Walker's story in his own words. I was a little different. I still say I'm a little different because I, my dreams are, you know, success to me is not having the most money or having the biggest car or the biggest house. Success is just being happy. And I try so many different things. I do a lot of different things because I, I, I think God has helped me to love myself. And God, I know who God is, and I love God. So I think growing up as a kid, you know, I, I used to write all the time. I was always by myself. And it's not that I wanted to be by myself, but we lived in a small town. We lived out in the country. There was no one around. So I was not going to use excuses and, and you know, one or away, away from home, go over someone else. I sit at home. I wrote uh, whatever I can get my hands on. I read. I, I thought knowledge, and I still think today knowledge is one of the key. Because when you're able to understand, life is a lot more beautiful than when you're able to uh, hear another language and understand it, it's a little bit beautiful than just hearing it. When you're able to see a uh, painting up on the wall and understand what you're looking at, it's a little bit more beautiful. And and I, so I used to like just read anything. I remember uh, getting a Sears catalog and reading about how this was done and where and 
stuff and just thinking, you know, I don't know how in the, why in the world I'm reading about women dresses, how to make women dresses. I don't think I'm ever going to become that. But, you know, just reading things, you know, I was just intrigued by it. The reason why, you know, you have some people get up and they tell you their life story, how they are uh, sort of like a boxer always uh, comes out and you say, well, I was never a tough guy and this guy stole my bike like the Muhammad Ali. So I went into boxing and next thing you know, I'm the heavyweight champion. You know, anyone can do that. I don't mean anyone can do it, but anyone can do like one of those stories. But no one can die and come back alive again. You know, it hasn't been done yet. There's only one person that has, has done something like that. So that inspired me. I said, hey, this guy's my hero. If he can do that, you know, I'm going to believe in this guy here. And to see him <clears throat> who can help the blind to see, you know, people that are sick, he can cure them. So he became a guy that I looked up to. So I used to read anything. And whenever my parents or anyone started talking about, you know, religion or about God, you know, I, you know, I ease over there and listen a little bit because I said, that's knowledge. And, you know, I'm not a big guy that's going to try to throw religion on anyone because that person has to be accountable for himself. And I think that's what we have to do in a society today is be accountable for yourself. I think we have the tendency of always want to live in, want to live someone else's life. We want to tell that person what to do, how to act, but yet we don't know how to act. And I think first, if we learn to act, Maybe we can help that other person. Run the race against yourself and not the guy in the other lane. And the reason I say that is as long as you give it 110%, you're going to succeed. But as long as you're trying to beat the guy over there, you're worried about him. You're not worrying about how you're going to perform. But believe in yourself because I think that's the very big key and to work hard. To dream, it takes work. To have a nightmare, it takes nothing. And I think if you're going to dream, you got to be willing to work because then it can be possible. If you're going to have a nightmare, you don't have to do anything but just hide in the closet. And I, I, I said dreams are possible through a lot of hard work. Ever since I was a little boy, I wanted to be in the FBI. So as I grew up, that's, that was my dream. That's all I wanted to do. And when I got a chance to go to college, I was going to my criminal justice degree, and I wanted to go to law school and go into the FBI. I was playing football, and I never really thought it was going to be a reality until my first day I was out on the football field and I realized then that I was going to play football and not have a chance to really go into the FBI until late in my career. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't uh, regret it. I think it, it's been a, a blessing for me. Being an athlete is being a competitor, not on the football field but in life. And you got to be able to compete in the classroom because you can always be president when you're 60. But when you turn 30, they're going to say you're too old for football. So knowledge can take you a long ways. Being an athlete can only take you a short little sprint. And you want to study hard because you always got something. Like I said, it is so great to be able to understand, you know, something. To sit down with the president and understand what's happening, then to go sit out there on the street with anyone still understand that is that is beautiful to do that just to go out and run a touchdown is only great for that time the next week if you don't do it they don't want you around no more
My most exciting achievement is being on the Olympic team in bobsledding. Uh, and one reason I say that is because, uh, you know, uh, there was a lot of controversy going on whether I should have the chance to compete on the Olympic team and this and that. And I say, you know, my problem with that is when you try for an Olympic team, I think they want they ask for the very best the United States has to offer. And if there's guys that's been practicing for years and cannot beat me, who's only been practicing for a few weeks, they do not deserve to be on the team. And to have an opportunity to go and become the best pusher for the U.S., I think was my biggest accomplishment. And then I think dancing in the Fort Worth Ballet. Uh, you know, ballet is probably the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And you know, and people always say, why you never said the Heisman Trophy? Well, I never said the Heisman Trophy because, uh, you know, as a freshman, they said Herschel should have won the Heisman Trophy. As a sophomore, they said Herschel should have won the Heisman Trophy. As a junior, Herschel wins the Heisman Trophy. And I said Herschel in third person because that's what people say about me all the time. But uh, I feel my junior year, did I win the Heisman Trophy or did, did they give it to me because they say he should have won it this year, he should have won it that year, so let's give it to him now, even though I had a good year. So I never said the Heisman Trophy. And people get upset about me about it, but uh, I'd say I must tell the truth. My mother's going to get upset with me. I never read an article about myself. Since I've been growing up, I never read anything about myself. I'm not a big sports page reader. I don't read sports pages. One reason why is I don't read about myself because I know myself better than the person that's writing the article. I don't read a lot of the sports because I think people sometimes either build it up or you have this guy that hates sports who's going to write bad about it, so I figured I'm not going to read it because I'm not going to let him uh, put an idea into my head. And I think reporters do not realize that they do that. And, you know, they would continue to say we're giving the news, but you put an idea in someone's head. They take an athlete, they build this athlete up, the kids look up to him, they're making the best thing in the world, and this athlete make one mistake, they write bad about him, saying he's a bum, he's this, he's that. Then on the next day, they build him back up again. So a kid may get that idea and say, hey, I can do that. I can be great, I can be great, and all of a sudden I can make a mistake, and I'm going to go down and I'm coming right back up. And I say, you know, uh, not speaking of uh, what the movie credits, but it's so funny because uh, they criticize so many movies, but yet a lot of the movies they criticize I like. So I said, what is so strange about it is who said that they're the people who decide the movie? And I, that's the way I look at life. You know, I was a person that was always by myself a lot. I always wrote, you know, and I think getting married gave me a uh, best friend. You know, and it gave me a person that, you know, she may not know all Herschel, but she knows me better than anyone else. You know, she's like, you, know, you always say you want to marry someone like your mother. And I'm going to say my wife's like my mother, but, you know, my mother knows me. But then my mother says she don't know me. Whereas my wife says she knows me, and then she says she don't. But it gave me a best friend, you know, someone that, you know, I can laugh and, you know, I can act silly sometime, and they're not going to judge me on that act. You know, I think people sometimes judge you, you know, but you have a right to be uh, free for a little bit. You have a right just to uh, laugh and, you know, just just to act up, as long as it's not in a, in a bad way. I, I think we, as an adult, we all are role models. If a little kid see an adult doing something, he's thinking it's okay. 
And for myself, I don't feel responsibility is reason wise. I think no matter what, I'm gonna do the very best I can I can do. I'm gonna be the very best I can be. Cause I think if a kid can see me doing that, he's gonna want to be the best he can be. But that's the way I am. I think we all should be like that. I, and it's so strange because I say a role model. What is that? Something to inspire you to do better. But I think if we all do better, it'll make this world better. So I don't think it's a responsibility because I think if I didn't do that, I'm cheating myself. And if I can be the best I can be, I'm helping someone else out anyway. And great job, as always, by Greg Hangler bringing us this story. And thanks to the Academy of Achievement. There's so many good stories there. Go to achievement.org. Achievement.org. And by the way, just as a recap, you know, him talking about his mother and father who went to work and never complained about it. They loved God and through his love on me, my mother and father were my role models. Then he talked about that one race where he didn't try and he lied. And he said, from now on, I'm going to give it everything I got. I don't care what it is. I'll never give up. And then last, just his emphasis on God. Success is being happy and God has helped me to love myself. And I love God. And of course, last, being accountable. And accountable to yourself. There's a tendency, he said, to tell others what to do or how to act. And boy, there's a lot of that going around these days. Herschel Walker's story, here on Our American Story. For more, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for the podcast.